Welcome to Worst Hole, the podcast that majors on disasters. I'm Michael Barron. This is dedicated to golfers who have had a bad hole. Really bad. Double figures bad. However, you are not alone. We asked the pros what was their worst hole, and does throwing, snapping clubs and swearing ever help? This week we're off to the lovely Golf Harbour course on Auckland's Whangaparaua Peninsula to meet one of New Zealand's top golfers of the 1970s, John Lister. John might not be as well known as some of his contemporaries like Sir Bob Charles, but he dominated the New Zealand and Australian circuit during the 1970s. His four consecutive wins in a professional tour event is a record that he shares with Tiger Woods. The long-hitting Lister also had success in Asia and on the British PGA circuit. He played for over a decade on the American PGA, winning the 1976 Quad Cities Open, which is now known as the John Deere Classic. Now 74, John still plays and loves the game. He's a huge fan of Lydia Ko, and he first met her as a skipping seven-year-old. And let's get started because I know you've got a tea time in about 50 uh, minutes. Take, take me through your worst hole or holes. Um, well, there's one in particular uh, probably I'm more famous for than any other. was at the Australian Open in the mid-70s, played at the Lakes Golf Club. And it was the first round, I think it was the 15th hole of par three. I had been playing pretty well, but getting very frustrated. The... Uh, sea breeze as they call it in Sydney which would be called a gale anywhere else in the world was had kicked in and the course was getting very difficult and I was about one or two over I think this particular par three the wind was coming hard right to left and I hit what I thought was a perfect tee shot landed on the front right hand corner of the green took a hard bounce into the middle of the green ran left down the bank and into water hazard off the left edge of the green. So I wasn't feeling very happy about this <laughs> at all. Uh, and then when I get there, I find the ball is lying on a sand bank, yeah. only about an inch under the water, or a couple of centimetres. So I decided that I could play this ball and I take my shoes and socks off, roll up my pants, clamber into the water, but now I'm standing in water that's over knee deep and the ball's up here nearly waist high but I was so ticked off at the time I wasn't about to pick it up and take a penalty I decided I would uh, play the ball <laughs> uh, needless to say me ex- extricating myself from the water there played at the start of the sports news for the rest of the week on TV in Australia but I did manage to make a 10 on the hole, 7 over. The next day I shot 69 and unfortunately missed the cut by a shot. Oh no. So it was a bit uh, costly that, a bit of a brain fade but the funny part was the next year the Open was at the Australian Golf Club in Sydney and the fourth hole was a par 3 and I'd tee shot hit the green and sucked back off the front into into a lake again, but just right on the edge. 
So I get up there and decide that I can play it and uh, taking my shoes and socks off next minute. The calls all around the course, Lester's in the water again, Lester's in the water. So the galleries come running from everywhere. So <laughs> that had a funny side, but I didn't get that one up and down and made a par. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's funny. Yeah. What sort of goes through your head when those sort of, you know, as you say, you were so ticked off with that initial tee shot being penalised for, you probably thought that wasn't very fair. What goes through your mind or, or does you just get that kind of raging kind of anger? Uh, partly that, uh, but the reason I didn't want to take a drop was I'd had a perfect shot and a drop was going to make uh, mean at least a bogey, maybe a double bogey, and I was... I thought, no, I'm playing better than that. Yeah. <laughs> but a bad decision, <laughs> as it turned out. Were you a, um, a, a thrower, a swearer, a snapper of clubs in the, in, in the, in the playing days when you did hit bad shots? No, uh, I learnt my lesson about throwing clubs at a very young age. I got very frustrated and biffed a club. But I actually felt worse after I threw it, so I thought, well, what's the point? Mm. You know, it didn't solve the frustration or anything. So uh, I was never tempted again to throw a, a club. Yes, I've been known to swear, but uh, uh, I did that whether I was hitting bad shots or good shots. <laughs> it wasn't the reason. So were you conscious, of, if you did have a bad shot, by the time you got to the next tee, you got rid of whatever feelings you you had that, that were maybe... Um, you try to single out each shot on its own. Yeah. The thing that annoyed me more in my career was when I made a mental error. If I made a physical mistake, so be it. We're humans, we're not robots. And I could handle that. But when I made a mental mistake, that was something I could control. Yeah. And that used to tick me off because that's what my job was, was to learn not to make those mistakes. Yeah. In the back of your mind, because you used to hit it so far, were you aware that you could probably be more prone to high scores on a particular hole? No. Uh, I saw my long hitting as an advantage. I was a reasonably straight driver, but uh, I just learned, well, learned to try and play smarter. I was always very aggressive and probably to my detriment to some uh, degree but that was part and parcel of and it wasn't like I tried to be long it was just natural my biggest issue was always control uh, fortunately I was a very straight iron player really really good you know it wasn't something that I saw as uh, you know to be played around and you can't button back mm. you've got to make your golf swing and that's what it produced. You turned pro at 18, uh, John, which is pretty, pretty young, and because you didn't have a, like a, a hugely long amateur career, was it? What, what was the thinking behind turning pro so quickly? Uh, very fortunate. I'd played the uh, Freiburg Rose Bowl up in Auckland in May of that 1966, I think it was. Uh, I got back home to Timaru, and I'd had one or two lessons from. Mike Wolveridge, who was the pro at Rusley at that time, and he gave me a call and he said, do you want to come up for dinner on Saturday night? And at the dinner, he made me a proposal. He said, uh, how would you like to turn pro? 
because I've got some people together that have got enough money to send you around the world for a year if you want to do it. So as an 18-year-old, I mean, how can you refuse? Yeah, yeah. This day and age, I'm not sure parents would allow an 18-year-old kid to go out on the whole wide world on their own. But my parents had faith in me. I made lifelong friendships with people on that tour. Uh, we started in Asia, went through, uh, and then uh, there were five of us shared a flat in London for the English part of it. Uh, I arrived back in Australia in October with five pounds plus an air ticket back to New Zealand. So the five quid went on accommodation the first night. I met up with Wally Godfrey, a New Zealand pro, who was a star in Australia at the time. And he said, oh, do you want to come and stay with me and another guy? And I said, yep. So I stayed in that motel for that week and uh, they'd order three breakfasts every morning. And I'd make my bed as soon as I got up. So the motelier didn't know there was a third person there. And then uh, the night of the cocktail party, the Wednesday night, I arrived home with my jacket stuffed full of the pockets with food to eat because I hadn't had dinner the whole bloody week. But anyhow, that's uh, wow. how you get on. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing those business people sort of um, gathered around you, John, in, in those kind of early days to sort of sponsor you, isn't it? Well, uh, and uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, my mum and dad were two of them. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, and they'd never said a word to me about it. Yeah but they knew how much I loved the game. Sponsorship ceased after that first year. My mum and dad come and help me and I played the New Zealand tour and I'd, by then I'd started to play some decent golf. All through Asia and England I didn't make a check, but I was on a huge learning curve. After the New Zealand circuit I went and worked in the freezing works uh, just south of Timaru for three months, save up enough money to go to Australia. Got over there and uh, within three tournaments I won the Alice Springs Open, which sort of got me going. And then uh, a couple of years later, I had some businessmen from uh, Wellington approach me and said they wanted to sponsor me. And I said, well, I can do what I'm doing without sponsorship. The only place I can't get to is the States. And they said, well, that's what we have in mind. So they ended up being fantastic sponsors for about six years. Mm. And getting on, getting your, your, your card over in those days was probably a lot trickier than it is now, did you, would you say? Uh, the, my first year was difficult because up until then, they'd had two schools a year. But 1969, the first year I tried, they only had one school. I had to go to regional qualifying for a start, and I did that up in uh, Ohio. Right before the first round, I get bloody tonsillitis and I've got to go to a hospital to get some penicillin injection and bugger me if I don't faint, faint while I'm waiting to pay the bill. Now they've got to keep me another bloody hour before they let me drive back to the hotel. So I didn't start well. I think I started with 78 or something. But anyhow, I ended up leading the qualifying and get down to Florida for the final school. They only gave 12 cards for the whole year. And there were three of us tied for 12th position. So they said, well, you've got to go and have a three-hole playoff. Starting the third of those three holes, I'm one behind a Canadian guy 
and one ahead of an American guy. And it's a par three, and I had it on the back of the green about 30 feet from the hole. The Canadian, he missed the green by about 20 yards, chipped on about 20 feet away, and the American, he had it on the front of the green. Well, I hold my 30-footer for a two, and I think, well, now I can't lose. But bugger me if the Canadian guy didn't hold his 20-footer for a par. So the two of us are tied. And they said, now you've got to go and play Sudden Death. Mm. So on the second hole of Sudden Death, the Canadian guy birdied the hole, so he got the pace. But for the Americans, they had nowhere to play if they missed the school. For me, it was actually a benefit because I could still play mm. Asia and Europe. And I, had a, I won twice in England, finished fourth on the Order of Merit over there. So I gained a lot of experience in that next year. Yeah and a lot of confidence, obviously, so. The prize money mustn't have been that great, though, back in those days, was it? No, um, most tournaments were $100,000, yeah. total prize money. Yeah. Towards the end, there were a couple of $500,000 tournaments, but it didn't cost as much to yeah. travel and everything. I mean, my last year with a family, admittedly driving, but that was because of preference, so I preferred to drive rather than sit in airports. It was about 50 grand a year. Yeah. Uh, today, there's probably 150 yeah, grand, yeah. at least, I would imagine. But uh, the prize money's a lot more. So you would have started on the US circuit and was about 1970, is that right? 71. 71, yeah. 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 And, and what, was, what was that like? Because television wasn't a big part of the golf equation at, at that time, was it? Like, Golf Channel hadn't started. No, um, but... Uh, some of the tournaments were televised. Yeah. And in fact, quite a few of them. Because Arnold Palmer, who started his run in the early 60s, he made golf popular. And, yep. and even the prize money that we played for, we had to attribute largely to the popularity yeah. that Arnold had made. Of course, there was Nicholas and Player and Bob Charles yeah. from New Zealand, who has always been a great friend and a helped me. So we played through, but it was really previous commissioner when I started was Joe Dye, who used to be the head of the uh, uh, Golf Association of America. But then in the middle 70s, one of our players, Dean Beeman, became the commissioner of golf. Wow. And he, well, it was when he retired, yeah. but he really had a vision and started to make things grow. Yeah. It was a fantastic tour to play on. Yeah. Well organised, uh, the players were well looked after, but then with the advent of Tiger Woods, I mean, it's gone to a whole new level. Yeah. I just see they made another announcement this last week that the minimum is seven million at the tournament and uh, the, the money is just outrageous. But the tour is owned by the players, so who else does the money go to yeah. that comes in? Yeah. I mean, the revenue from TV is astronomical. Yeah. With the PGA Tour, the threat of this new Super League or whatever from Saudi Arabia, I mean, the PGA Tour is just blowing them out of the water. Talk, talk to me about your your um, your win over the Quad Cities Open, which is now called yep. the John Deere Classic, is that, Correct. Is that right? Correct, yeah. Is that sort of a vivid memory for you? Oh, very much so. And it was a place, the Quad Cities is on the border of uh, Illinois and Iowa, two of the cities on each side of the river. In Devonport, Iowa, 
was a chiropractic college where all the New Zealand people studying chiropractic went to. Really? Wow. So I had support these Kiwis jumping the corn fences and everything to come and watch their player play there. I'd had a one-shot lead starting the final round and my ambition was to just not make a bogey. And I think I shot one under the front nine and all of a sudden my lead was three. And I thought, shit, I could shoot three over and, you know, probably still be all right. But anyhow, the 11th hole was a short par four. I drove it on the green, made a birdie. And then the 13th was a par five, which I hit the green and two and made an eagle and now I had a five shot lead. Thought, well, even I can get home from here. <laughs> <laughs> so did that give you an exemption for a little while, John? Yes, it did uh, for the rest of that year and all of the next year. But in those days, well, today is the top 125 that are exempt. Those days, it was only the top 60. Wow. So the following year, I think I finished in the 70s somewhere. So it was back to Monday qualifying. That was a very negative part of golf because couldn't afford to make a mistake, otherwise you were down the road. So you ended up playing very defensive mm. golf, which maybe in my case was a help to my growth in yeah. golf, having to play defensive. But uh, sometimes the numbers just got the better of you. There might be 200 of you for four spots. Well, you know, the odds of making it are pretty slim. So you could be possibly playing six rounds a week with the Monday qualifying. Were they, were they two rounds? The, the... No, the Monday qualifying is one round. Okay. But that's uh, also the middle of the year, around US Open time. Uh, <clears throat> often it was uh, at Memphis. I'd have Monday qualifying, and then Tuesday would be a 36-hole day for the US Open qualifying. Oh, wow. And in 100-degree heat with 90% yeah. humidity, I mean, you're fucking wiped out before the tournament starts. <laughs> So a couple of times I didn't uh, enter the US Open because it was too much of a hassle. And, and one time I know for sure that I didn't manage qualifying, I finished second at Memphis. And uh, I wouldn't have finished second if I'd done the US Open yeah. qualifying. People, you know, uh, don't quite understand all the ramifications that are going on all the time. And even today, some of the guys, I mean, they probably suffer over the US Open qualifying because of 36 holes in yeah. one day in hot, hot weather. Yeah. Talking earlier, John, about your connection with um, Lydia Go here yeah. at the Golf Harbour. Just, just take us through, how old was Lydia when you first met her and did you sort of sense something special immediately? No, not far from it. Lydia was about seven when I first met her and that would have been down at the range at Takapuna where Bob McDonald, my good friend, was coaching Sharon Arn, and Lydia might have been in the next bay. But she was a real little show-off. She'd hit a shot, and then you'd see her look up and down the range to see who was watching. <laughs> but very encouraged on her development. I'm not sure that I ever saw her miss hit a shot. I like a fluff, for example? Yeah, right. never, ever. But anyhow, from that, uh, Sharon Arn was the best woman player in New Zealand. And we used to play here a lot of Sunday mornings during the year and Lydia would tag along and I'd tag along with Bob. So we weren't coaching Lydia, but I saw it as an opportunity to help grow her as a person and also to try and ensure that she had fun playing golf because 
golf's a hard game and it's important that you have fun while you're doing it. So she was probably eight years old, playing the fourth hole at Golf Harbour. She couldn't get to the green in two. She had hit a drive down to the fairway. And I said, where, where are you going to hit this to? She said, oh, just down the fairway. I said, Lydia, have a look where the flag is. Flag's on the back left, so surely if you hit this on the right-hand side of the fairway, you're going to have an easier chip in. Never, ever had to, again, mention anything about course management. Wow. It was like she got it. Yeah. And so maybe that was a hint, but at the time... We could see that she's going to be good, but God, we had no idea she's going to be as good as she is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think timing plays a big part. Sharon Ahn, who was about eight years older, was the best player, woman player in New Zealand at the time. So she saw what the standard was. When Sharon went back and turned pro, went back to Korea, she had Cecilia Cho, the other side of Auckland, who was the number one amateur in the world. So she got better until yeah. she beat her. Yeah. And I am just so proud of Lydia, what a person she is. Mm. It's, it's besides the golf. I mean, she's done stuff that no other human being, male or male, female, have done, but just as a person. What a person to have representing this country. Yeah. And when you look at um, golf here at the moment, John, where would you see this as standard of the, of the younger um, players coming through, both for men and women? I think we've got an awful lot of talent. I think we lack hard tournament play for all of them. Yeah. Uh, and when it, you mean hard, you mean the, the, the difficulty of the golf course or...? Both and the competition, yeah. all the competition. Yeah. Our Charles Tour serves a purpose, but we have very good amateurs and pros that shoot lights out in the Charles Tour events, go overseas, don't see them. Yeah. Uh, they're not to be heard of. So, and... The, the one part that I'm perhaps a little disappointed about, you take, for instance, China, huge country with massive number of golfers that are on the increase. Where do all their best golfers go to school in the USA and play college golf? A lot of ours are offered scholarships, but I don't think New Zealand golf encourages them. I think they'd rather think that their program is good enough here. Right, they're... yeah. Well, it's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. The best players come from the American yeah. college system. And they're getting that week in, week out, a aren't they? And it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard competition. Yeah, yeah. Whereas here, it's not so hard. Yeah. Um, now, your own golf, you know, you, you still get out, try and get out at least kind of once a week. What's what's the, what's the score of John Mister? Nowadays, what are you expecting today? I'm 74 years old and I've learned a long time ago you have no expectations when you play golf. Um, I, I just do it for fun. Uh, the standard is abysmal, <laughs> but that's beside the point. If I hit one or two good shots, yeah. I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. And I realise that I'm 74 years old, I have multiple sclerosis, and so. I'm not going to be what I was when I was a young fella. Yeah, yeah. And um, finally, John, what's your what would your advice be to the amateur golfer who has a, a bad hole? First thing, take a couple of deep breaths. Uh, but you have to put it behind you. Uh, easier said than done. But the best way is just try and focus on your next shot and get rid of any bad thoughts. Yeah. Because everybody has bad shots. Tiger Woods, at his best, had bad shots. 
you have to accept them. They're going to happen. Doesn't matter how good you are. We have talked about the the worst hole. Is there a, a best hole or a best round that's still cemented in your brain? There's a best shot. Best shot. Uh, Take us through that. That was at Rusley. Uh, I got to the 16th hole, which is a par five. It doesn't exist anymore. It heads towards the uh, Memorial Avenue Road, and dog legs left parallel with the road down to the green with a big row of trees on the left. This particular day, the wind was a nor'wester, which is blowing it toward, behind you and towards the road. I cut it too fine on the left and I hit the trees on the left and it dropped down in the greenside bunker of the 17th green. To me, to try and get it back down the fairway was too big a risk. I went down the 17th fairway, ended up in the right-hand rough of the 17th fairway, but a decent lie. And I get down there and I've got this big row of trees, tall, tall trees in the way. I send Bruce McCaddy off to get a yardage. And I'm looking at it and I think, yeah, I can get three wood over the trees, but it won't stop on the green. One iron, yeah, maybe I'll hit a one iron low and there's a 50-50 chance it either hits the trees or it goes through a gap. And Bruce comes back and I said, how far have we got? He said, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> Which is half the reason why I employed him as a caddy was because of his honesty. And uh, he was generally very good. But all of a sudden, uh, a brainwave came. Oh, I can hit two iron over there. So I grabbed the two iron, whacked it, and it cleared the trees, stopped on the back of the green. I two-putted for a par and I still had my one-shot lead and I birdied 17 and 18 to win the tournament. Right. And a lot of people, it's amazing how many people reckon they were there and saw that shot, but there wouldn't have been more than 50 people there, but I people up and down the country would tell me that they were there that day. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time, John. I really, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks to you for listening to Worst Hole. I'm Michael Barron. And we'll be back very soon with more High Score Confessions. Enjoy your golf, wherever that stray ball may take you.